Amen. Please remain standing and hear the words of our God from the Gospel of John, chapter 6. I'll be reading verses 16 through 21. These are the words of God. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. Let us pray. Father, with your word open before us, open our hearts and minds to the full work of your spirit with this word. Place it deep into us, not only the story, but the truth it proclaims about you. And then let us live accordingly by that spirit. Bless now the preaching of your word. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. As you go through the Gospel of John, as you read through the Gospel of John, as you study the Gospel of John, watch carefully for the themes that John continues to bring out over and over again. John is using a number of literary devices. You can read John all the way through and and clearly understand it just quickly. But as you study, there are many layers or many things that he he is doing um, to accomplish what he said is his purpose in writing the gospel. Remember, John, everybody agrees um, that John was the last of the four gospels written. There's, There's debate about exactly the dating of the gospels. But everybody agrees that John was the last gospel. And most likely, many of the churches, early churches, already had copies of other gospels. So... So it goes without saying, there's a wonder about what's the purpose of this fourth gospel. And this fourth gospel contains all kinds of information, all kinds of stories, signs, miracles, teachings of Jesus that don't show up in any of the other gospels. But this is not one of them. This fifth sign here, this fifth sign is another like the feeding of the 5,000, which shows up in all four gospels. This one shows up also in Matthew and in Mark. Interestingly, this is the shortest account of the three versions. There's, uh, in John's, this is the fifth of the seven signs, um, but this one particularly is different than uh, the recounting, for instance, of the feeding of the 5,000, which is very similar. This one is quite shortened by John um, to emphasize particular points. He doesn't mention, for instance, that it was Jesus who took them down to the, to the water and put them on the boat and sent them on their way. He doesn't mention that, while, Mark mentions that while he's praying, uh, he goes up in the mountain and, and says to pray, and while he's praying, it says he can see them on the boat, but, he, but John doesn't mention this. Um, he, he doesn't mention that they were rowing against the waves, against the sea all night, and it was the, it was the fourth watch, probably about 3 a.m., when Jesus finally appears. And, and, and he misses what everybody always likes is the story of Peter being called out to walk with him on the water. All of these things are not, they're not in the gospel of John. Um, they've been separated, they've been set aside, and most likely they've been set aside because John wants you to particularly notice certain things about the story that is before us. So how, how, how should we look at this then? Well, the key to interpreting the gospel of John is to keep in mind the prologue, the first 18 verses, and particularly verse 1 and verse 14 as we come to this passage. In the beginning was the word, And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, as he begins his gospel, unlike all the other gospels. In verse 14, of course, um, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, 
And we beheld his glory, the glory as, the, as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. These themes, these ideas are being unwrapped, unpacked, spread out all throughout uh, the Gospel of John, and we'll see them here. The, 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 these two verses should hover over our reading and considering of this text in the same way that the Spirit hovered over the waters at creation. And in addition to looking at that, there's also just to consider the experience of the disciples themselves. Uh, 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 J.C. Ryle says this. He says, we see them alone in a dark night, tossed about by a great wind on stormy waters. And worst of all, Christ not with them. It was a strange transition from witnessing a mighty miracle and helping it instrumentally amid an admiring crowd, being a part of seeing 10,000 or more people fed through the miraculous work of Christ to solitude, darkness, winds, waves, storm, anxiety, and danger. Imagine, imagine the, the, the stark contrast of those two events for the disciples. But Christ knew it, and Christ appointed it, and it was working for their good. J.C. Ryle. John had said the former sign was to test them. In verse 6, you might remember that uh, he, uh, he turns to Philip and he says, Where shall we buy the bread that these may eat? And then John tells us, But this Jesus said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. So there was a test that had been given in that miracle. Uh, and, and, and we noted that the test was, more, was less about what Jesus could do and more about who Jesus was, who Jesus was. Well, if that was a test, this was now the honors level portion of the exam. Here's a quick overview. Jesus departed the crowd and his disciples, and by himself he goes up into a mountain, verse 15. That evening the disciples went down, got into a boat, and set out to return to Capernaum. John notes that it was already dark. That would be important. And Jesus had not come with them, verses 16 and 17. A storm arose because of a great wind blowing, in verse 18. Rowing for three or four miles, 15 to 20 stadia, we are told, that in, in this storm, they suddenly saw Jesus walking on the sea, drawing near, and it's then that they become terrified. Jesus said, I am, fear not. Actually, your translation probably says, it is I, fear not. We'll talk about that, verse 20. And their response was to willingly receive him into the boat, after which John says that immediately the boat was at the land. Well, if I let the prologue, if I let verse 1 and verse 14 inform my reading of the text here, I see certain themes that are being played out that are, that are coming out over and over again throughout the gospel and being um, focused in on in this story. Themes of Moses and the Exodus we saw in the previous, uh, in, in the previous parable, in the feeding of the 5,000, we have, um, we have uh, Jesus um, taking people out uh, into a wilderness area and then, uh, and then feeding them as Moses took his people out and then provided for them heavenly bread as well. In fact, that theme will come back up. We'll be talking about that in the following passage. And so we, we saw that Jesus is a greater Moses, but Jesus is more than a greater Moses. Remember, John 20, verse 31 is saying that all of these things are written to us that we might believe that Jesus not just is a greater Moses, but that he's the Son of God. That he is the Son of God that Moses was pointing to, that Moses was speaking with, that Moses was receiving from. This is not just the greater Moses, this is the Son of God himself. 
Like Moses, though, Jesus ascends up to a mountain to pray in this text. And while Moses caused the waters to divide, Jesus walks upon the waters. God alone, we are told, treads on the waves of the sea, Job 9, 8. And it is God who stills the storms of the waters, we are told, Psalm 89, 9. So what is being declared here then about Jesus? God was in the burning bush, a fire that wouldn't consume, and Jesus walked on the sea, waters that would not drown. So we have this theme of Moses, of the Exodus, of, uh, of, of something, uh, of this great appearing of God. We also have this theme of darkness. Uh, remember in, 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 the, in the prologue, it said, um, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Darkness shows up over and over again um, throughout the, uh, and, and we should watch for that as we, as we go through the Gospel of John. It says here, and it was already dark. It's not, um, the Holy Spirit doesn't waste words, okay? So why do we need to know that it was dark? We're, we're setting a, he's setting a scene up here. This Gospel begins with creation language. We saw that in 1.1. And here we are again with darkness on the face of the deep, just as it said in Genesis 1-2. Darkness over the face of the deep. Jesus, we know, is the one who created the world. We're told that in John 1-3, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. And Jesus is the true light. We saw that Nicodemus came to Jesus in the darkness. John 3-2 said um, that uh, that it was, it was in the evening, it was at dark, when Nicodemus comes to Jesus. And again, sometimes uh, commentators will just say they're just telling you what time, or that maybe that Nicodemus was, uh, was concerned that he would be noticed, and so he comes in the, in the darkness. But all of that is speculation as well. What is, what is true is that these, these, these points happen where there's darkness, and then God brings forth some kind of light. Over and over again, there's this creation language that, that is going on. So, um, and, and of course, John tells us why um, men are condemned in the darkness and must come to the light in, in his discourse with, uh, in Jesus' discourse with Nicodemus. In John 3.19, it says, And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practices evil, um, the, the, hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed." But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. So we have these themes of, of Moses and the Exodus. We have these themes of darkness and darkness being overcome with light. We have the theme also of the wind, of, of God and the wind. Remember that both in Hebrew and in Greek, there's only one word for the, for the word wind and spirit. In Hebrew, it is ruach, and in uh, Greek, it is pneuma. And, and so whenever you see the word um, wind, you, you have to understand that a, an interpretive decision has been made. And usually you can make it pretty easily within the context. Um, but it's, it's the same word, and as you're looking at it in, in Hebrew or in Greek, as you're looking at the original language, you can't help but notice that you could almost replace these two things. Of course, you remember, that's exactly what Jesus did as he spoke to Nicodemus, saying the wind blows where it wish, wishes, and so is the Spirit, in the same way as the Spirit. Well, that's the same word, okay? So, um, so we have here in John 6, then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. Well, God walked in the wind of the day, we we're told in uh, Genesis 3.8. You know, you know when, uh, the, the time when, when uh, after, after Adam and Eve fall, 
and then, and then they're hiding themselves. Almost all translations say, and God was walking in the cool of the day. Well, that's the word wind and spirit also. It's the same word. He was walking in the wind of the day. Um, he pushed the floods away with his wind in Genesis 8, uh, in Noah's day. And he parted the Red Sea, it says, with his wind in Exodus 14, verse 21. Wind or spirit? Yes. Jesus told Nicodemus that the wind blows where it wishes, just as the Spirit, John 3, 5 and following. And the wind, this wind or Spirit of God, was hovering over the face of the waters, Genesis 1, 2. God feeds His people with angel food, we are told, and brings the winds in Psalm 78, verses 25 and 26. And here we have Jesus who has brought food, angel food, to the people, and now here comes the winds. We have this language here, again, of the Son of God, of the Creator, of the Creator of all things, and, and, the, and the one who has control over all creation. We also have the theme of the storm and the theme of seas throughout the Scriptures, and we have it certainly here. Um, one commentator says, The Sea of Galilee, Galilee lies about 600 feet below sea level. Cool air from the southeastern tablelands can rush in to displace the, the warm moisture air over the lake, churning up the water in a violent squall. In other words, um, big squalls can quickly take place on the Sea of Galilee all the time. And that's all we really need to know about it. Or is it? Is that, is that all, we're, all we're to see that's going on? So that, that's the material observation. But is John pointing us to something else to consider as well, something deeper? The waters, it said uh, in Genesis 1, 9 and 10, the waters had to be gathered up into one at creation to separate the land from the waters. And we are told that God did that, that God spoke and that was done. The sea often stands for chaos and disorder, a symbol of a world in sin. Turn with me to, to Psalm 69 for just a moment. It's helpful to see these themes come up over and over again in the Psalms oftentimes uh, with different kinds of applications uh, and yet very similar words and stuff to help you see this. Look at 69, 69 verse 1. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. Well, this is a Psalm of David. I don't think he literally was having waters come up to his neck. He's, he's talking about what he's experiencing. La later on in verse 14, 15, he says, Deliver me out of the mire and let me not sink. Let me be delivered from those who hate me and out of the deep waters. Let not the flood water overflow me, nor let the deep swallow me up, and let not the pit shut its mouth on me. Have you ever been in the water and, been a, and, and it's gotten a little too rough? It's gotten a little too crazy? And you begin to fear for your life. You have that sense that the waters are a can be this great place of chaos and threat. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 2 and 3, we are told that the four winds of heaven stir up the great sea and four great beasts come up from the sea. And then, these are, we, we, we come to understand as you read through Daniel 7 that these are the idolatrous kingdoms of the world against the Son of Man, who in the end ascends to rule over all of them. 
Daniel 7, 13 and 14, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him, this is right after we hear that the four great beasts coming out of the waters... Um, are the idolatrous nations which are going to be put down. So now the Son of Man comes, ascends up into heavens, then he sits there, and it says, To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. A great picture of that which could come forth from the sea of chaos and of threats could not stop and will not stop the Son of Man's reign over all the nations of the world. God rules the raging of the sea, we are told, in Psalm 89.9. And it is he who controls and stills it. One more psalm to turn to. Turn to Psalm 107. It's worth seeing. Hundred and seven, verse twenty-three. Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he commands and raises the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves of the sea. They mount up to the heavens, they go down again to the depths, their soul melts because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at their wit's end. Then they cry out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brings them out of their distresses. He calms the storms so that its waves are still. I wonder if the disciples sang this <laughs> in, in their deliverance. Because it says, then they are glad because they are quiet, so he guides them to their desired haven. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Let them exalt him also in the assembly of the people and praise him in the company of the elders. So that in this story, in this uh, psalm here, all, all the tumultuous waves take place. And then in verse 30, then they are glad because they are quiet, quiet and he guides them to their desired haven. And in this passage, John, un, in, in a way that is not found in Matthew and Mark, John says it, that that uh, uh, Jesus arrives in the boat and then his disciples, and he's with his disciples, and immediately it says the boat was at the land where they were going. Uh, and, then, and there's all this discussion about whether or not that was another miracle that took place or not. Um, but I, I think more importantly, what, what John wants to point out is that once Jesus is in that boat, immediately you're in your safe haven. Immediately, you are going to get to the place where, um, he, where you need to be and where he wants you to be. So again, creator, ruler, sustainer, language that is being used in telling the story. It's far more than just uh, the nice story, that nice children's miracle story that you tell your kids. There's, there's much more going on here. And of course, that's why back in John 6, if you turn there again, John... John wants to, to really point out this, uh, this, this fact that Jesus is the Son of God. So verse 19, so when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. Oh, and by the way, another, another piece that's in, uh, uh, Matthew and, uh, in Matthew. When they see Jesus on the sea, they see him from a distance. And the first, at first, they think that he's a phantom. They think he's a ghost. And they're terrified. Um, here, 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 that piece is not brought out. But they, but they do say that they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. Would you have been afraid? 
You know, I, you know, I, I, th I think I, if I've been rowing all night, been fighting against a storm, and now I see Jesus coming, I'm, I kind of be like, yeah, okay, great, here we go. They're afraid. As, he, as they come into his presence, they're afraid. He gets in the boat, and he says to them, it is I, do not be afraid. So we've had all this creation language, all this mosaic exodus language abounding throughout here, right? So it should come no surprise that Jesus says to them, it is I. But that's not what he said. He said, ego eimi. He said, I am. He used the phrase, and it's going to show up again over and over again throughout the, the Gospel of John. He says, literally it says, I am, no fear. I am, don't fear. And, and, and so um, this ego eimi is the exact divine name that God gave to Moses in Exodus 3.14. This is one of the many I am statements that you'll find in John. For instance, we'll find one in uh, in uh, John 8, 58, we'll be coming to soon. Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. That was not a grammatical error. He's declaring who he is. He's, he's giving himself the divine name of God. And so this is a clear de declaration of Jesus, of his, uh, of his div divinity. This was the test for these signs. Not what could he do, but who was he? But who was he? But then after saying, I am, he says, do not fear. This is who I am. Do not fear. The other gospel accounts note that they had rowed against the storm all night. It was late, the fourth watch, and then they saw what they thought was a phantom walking on the water. Psalm 77. Um, uh, oh, I thought I had typed it. I have to turn there also. Psalm 77. I told you one, only one more, two more. Psalm 77, verse 16. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you. They were afraid. The depths also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies sent out a sound. Your arrows also flashed about. The voice of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the sea. Your path in the great waters. And your footsteps were not known. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Do you see this? This is the story of God revealing himself in the storm. This is the story of God revealing himself in the storm and his people in need turning to him in fear and finding comfort, finding a haven of rest. This fear in the storm is worth thinking about for a moment. The phrase, do not fear and be not afraid, shows up in Scripture over 120 times. Why, why do we hear over and over and over again, do not fear? Many times it's when uh, a theophany occurs, uh, the angel of the Lord or angels, it's do not fear. But oftentimes it is God speaking uh, in a, in, like this into a particular situation, and he's saying, do not fear. You're not supposed to be afraid. Why do you think God has to tell us 120 plus times, do not fear? Because what do we often do? <laughs> right? Jesus teaches us, though, that the only fear we are to have is the fear of God. And we are to learn this. This is, this is to be something that 
um, that we keep. In John, or in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. But that's not all he says. He goes on and he says, Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So first of all, he says, don't fear man, but instead you should fear God, because God can kill both your body and soul and send it to hell. And, and, and then, so let, let's preach the hellfire and brimstone, right? And he says, but then he goes on immediately and says, don't you know the very hairs of your head are numbered? I, I have it all in control. I want you to fear me <laughs> and not anyone else because nobody else has it in control. Any of it. By the way, including you. You have none of it in control. So don't fear Man, don't fear situations. Don't, don't find yourself... Fear. How, but how am I going to not do that? Well, he says, well, here's how. Fear me. Fear me. Because I have control over everything. <laughs> I have control over that storm that you find yourself in. This passage explains the reason to fear only him is because he knows the very hair, number of the hairs on your head. Nothing, that means nothing touches you except it pass through the loving hands of your loving Father and Jesus who calls you friend, not even physical death. Nothing occurs in your life that has not passed through the approval of your Father. Jesus wants you to know who He is because we need to become a people who, who learn to trust Him call upon him, walk with him in the midst of the storm, in the midst of whatever storm he has brought. We oftentimes want Jesus to come and relieve us from the storm. We get that. But do we, do we realize he's the one who brought the storm? One of the reasons we are such an easily troubled people, full of anxiety and fear, is that we do not fear God. The God of our modern sensibilities is small, manageable, inattentive, full of sweet sentiment, but unable to control all the storms of life. We, we see God up in heaven either not caring enough or not able enough. He's either not caring enough or he's saying, you, you, pray, you pray for a safe passage um, for your children when they're traveling across the state and you hear from God, I'm sorry, I don't do drunks. I, I, I can't control them. Right? You, but, but do we believe in a sovereign God who controls even the very hairs on your head? And from that, everything else. So when we view God as distant in that way, unable or inattentive in that way, then we determine that we must be the captain of our souls, which leads to terrible and lonely fear. The fear of the creaturely things, that could be man, relationships with others, cancer that could come, the loss of a job I might have or have, marital unhappiness that might happen in the future, the what-ifs and the what-abouts, followed by those scary ideas. What if this happens? What about that? 
these things that you cook up in your imagination, they cripple us. They cripple us with fear. And Jesus says, don't fear. I am. This is because to face those fears effectively without a sovereign God means that you have to be the one who is omnipotent. And we're just not very good at that. Just not very good at that. But the answer is not to live a life with no fear. Rather, it is to place fear in the right place and upon the right person. It is to live a life that sees God placing you in the storm. It's not, it's not just that he can get you out of the storm. He placed you in it. He brought that into your life. He oversaw in his providence all that has occurred and is occurring and will occur in your life. And the I am is present with you in that storm. And better than that, through that storm. And taking you immediately to that haven of rest, to the land. When the seas are parted, when the waters are parted at the word of God in creation, then and only then, land is brought up. Land is raised up. Land exists. Land, the place of stability, the place where Adam would be able to be put to live. But there was no land until God said, separate the waters and bring forth the land. There was no land for, the, for them in the storm at all to get to until Jesus arrives and now there's land. This is recreation story. This is recreation account. This is the work of God in the midst of a storm. How can, how can it be immediately in, in these things? Well, um, because as soon as he is there, they're singing Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. I might as well be on the land. Why? For you are with me. Who? I am is with you. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So that is, that is an understanding of what, what, why we are to have fear in the storm, but who we are to have fear towards. And maybe just more importantly is just to see, again, that God is in the storm. God's in the storm. You need to see the um, you need to see that you have storms in your life, and I probably don't have to tell you that. There are storms in your life, aren't there? There are hard, there are terrible, there are very difficult storms in our lives. But do you see Jesus in the storm? Remember the, in the story of the feeding of the 5,000, I told you that they were... They want, we were learning that in the midst of a need, we were to see, we were not to pretend like a need didn't exist, but that we were to see through the need to the one who is going to provide. Well, more importantly, when you're in the storm, it's not just seeing through the storm to the one who's going to, the one who's going to get you out it or get you through it, but it's to see him in the storm, the one who's brought you to the storm, the one who placed you in the storm. Look, if that's not true, if that's not true, then my life is, that I am, I am scared to death. There are so many things that might happen. There are so many terrible, evil things that might happen today and tomorrow and the next day. And if God isn't the one that puts me in those things, if he, if, if, if it turns out someone else is in charge, now I'm scared. 
the, the, the pushback to the idea that God is the one who brought the storm or that God is the one who put you in the storm is that you begin to think, well, then he, why, he, why is he so mean? Why does he keep doing all these mean things to me? I, I want my life to be, you know, sitting on a, a nice, calm boat with a cool drink and a lot of sun for pretty much all the rest of my life. And, and that, why can't God just give me that? Why, is, why does he always bring trouble? He says, I am. Do not fear. He brings trouble for lots of reasons, but one of the reasons is so we would learn to fear him and turn to him and call out to him and see him riding the storm for his particular purposes and glory. You're to turn to him but you are to do so in fear. They saw Jesus, and it's when they see Jesus that they're afraid. We need to learn to see God and be afraid and then hear from him. Do not fear, friend. But I fear, if I can use that word, but I fear that we don't do that. We don't see God that way. We don't, we don't preach God that way. So, but instead, I think we need to turn to him and we need to turn to him in fear. Um, Isaiah 8, 13 says, let him be, let God be your fear and dread. See, if God is your fear and dread, then you won't fear anything else. If, God, if you fear God, then you won't fear anything else. Jesus said it. And then you hear from him that, that as you fear him and you behold his glory, John 1, 4 again says, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Or if I could flip those, full of truth. He is a God to be feared and full of grace. Full of grace to comfort, to care for, to take care of any need in your time of need. The truth is that God is to be feared. And this God who is to be feared is full of grace. You, you don't get to choose who God is. Jesus is revealing to his disciples and to us who he is. You don't get to choose who God is. You don't get to write out his job description. You don't get to write out his characteristics. You don't get to uh, go flip through the Bible and say, I like this about God and I don't like this. You don't get to be like Thomas Jefferson and just rip out the par parts you don't like. You don't get to do that. You don't get to choose who God is and you do not get to choose what he is like. But he is full of of grace and truth. And when you willingly receive him in the boat, did you see that also? When you, they willingly received him in the boat. They decided, they chose, they invited, they longed for, they wanted him. The one they feared, they wanted to be with him. They willingly received him into the boat as he is. And when you do so, he will bring you safely to the land, to your haven. You know, we sang, um, we sang, we sang uh, St. Patrick's Breastplate. And St. Patrick was a, was a missionary to the Irish. And he, um, as he goes in, he's going to be taking the gospel to a very dangerous land. And our understanding is that he wrote these words as a, as a poem for himself to be able to recite and think through in his journeys. And it was, it was binding himself to all of everything God has created, and to everything that God is. And then there's this chorus 
this chorus part of it, where he is seeing Christ in the storm. He's seeing Christ everywhere, all around him. And he sings, Christ be with me, Christ within me, Christ behind me, Christ before me, Christ beside me, Christ to win me, Christ to comfort and restore me. Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ in quiet, Christ in danger, Christ in hearts of all that love me, Christ in mouth of friend and stranger. He knew he was going into a storm, and he knew Christ was with him. But he wrote a song, because we have to remind ourselves, don't we, in the midst of the storm. In the midst of the storm, you have to know who you're supposed to fear, what you're supposed to fear. And it is not the circumstances. It is not the what-ifs. It is not the evil. You are to fear God. And when you fear God, then you will not fear those things. And when you fear God in that way, you will sing of the one that you fear, Christ be with me, Christ within me, above and beyond, below and around me, all around me, Christ I am is with you. He's with you. He brought the storm. He walks upon the storm. He comes to you in the storm. He takes you through the storm. And he promises to bring you to your haven of rest. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.